Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the honor of having David Gamberg with us. Now, someone once said that the word minister is within the word administrator. The essence of good leadership is listening, much like a minister listens to his or her congregation. David Gamberg often reflects on the leadership challenge through the act of listening rather than telling. He considers himself an artist and a teacher as much as a superintendent of schools. He formed his leadership views early on at the High School of Art and Design in New York City as the senior class president, honored to address his classmates at Carnegie Hall, where the graduation of the class of 1980 was held. At Stony Brook University, he held several positions in the student government where he honed his leadership skills. Perhaps most pivotal as a life experience was his work with incarcerated youth in California for a four-year period in the late 1980s. Learning to listen to at-risk youth as members of street gangs taught him a great deal about human relationships, one of the cornerstones of being an effective leader. More recently, Mr. Gamberg has taken the view that public education is under assault. He has joined with like-minded educators in leading the effort to raise awareness about the damage that is being done to public education in America through his work writing journal articles, giving community presentations, and developing position papers that explore the future of education in the United States. Welcome, David Gamberg. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Great. So we're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? Sure. Great. Okay, so can you tell us a bit about your leadership journey? Sure. So the origins of my desire to lead began while keeping a journal in high school. I vividly recall seeking to enter a career where I could help others. I could probably trace my path to leadership back to my senior year in high school when I ran for and became the senior class president. I'm sorry, it dates back to high school. That's great. Quite vividly, actually. Mm -hmm. At the time, uh, I helped to organize a fundraising campaign designed to benefit the Cambodian refugees who, in 1979, were known as the Boat People. We organized an international food and crafts fair that raised about $500 for a United Nations Relief Agency. Shortly thereafter, in college, I became active in the student government at Stony Brook University. I majored in history and became inspired by a professor to go into teaching. After about 10 years in the classroom, I pursued my administrative certification, eventually starting that part of my career as an elementary assistant principal, then principal, assistant superintendent, and now superintendent. So let's back up a bit. When I hear your story, it comes from compassion. I hope so. I mean, that's truly where I start 
and end probably my view of our role as leaders to be compassionate. And someone taught me that the word minister is in administrator. That's right. And what good ministers do is they listen to the flock. Mm-hmm. They don't preach without listening more than they do talking. That's true. And that is, I believe, stems from a compassionate lens on what we need to do. How would you describe your leadership style? I think very simply it's described as building consensus, being inclusive. Some may describe that as distributive leadership. Um, I also look to lead by example. Mm-hmm. Those are the key elements of my style of leadership. Mm-hmm. Which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? I have a few. You have a few. I hope hope it's okay. It's very hard to narrow it down. But the first one by Peter Drucker is management is doing things right. Leadership is doing the right things. It is such a key distinction that we find ourselves sometimes faced with this issue of making sure we're managing day to day, but we're also leading. And people confuse the two or they think they're synonymous that good leaders are managers, or it doesn't make a difference whether we're doing the right thing as long as we're doing them right. I think that's a critical distinction. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like we have to pay attention to you know, which direction we're heading in as much as the fact that we're going there quickly or effectively or efficiently. And it takes being intentional, like really being present. It does, in the moment and really being reflective also. And Blanchard said the key to successful leadership today is influence, not authority. Well, much more and more we find ourselves in this role of uh, leadership where we cannot command, we have to legislate. It's more legislative than it is executive in terms of creating change, which is what the role of the leader ultimately is, is to help facilitate that change. So I think that these quotes do recognize that the landscape of the leadership challenge is ever-changing today, whether it's as a result of technology, globalization, any of these factors and many others, societal changes are causing organizations, both small and large, to face new challenges. The, the simple fact that people have access technologically to things to produce, communicate mm-hmm. in ways that we didn't just a few learn. short years ago and learn means that we have to legislate the process of leadership and create that buy-in, if you will. Another one, just a little slightly different topic. Courageous leadership is not fearless leadership. What makes you a leader is how you deal with your fears. That's another dimension of leadership that I I focus on quite a bit is leading myself, ultimately, before I can look to lead others. It's a daily, weekly process where I'm looking introspectively and thinking about how I need to become a better leader by leading my own actions and thoughts. And that's really important, David. Can we talk about that a little bit more? And I truly believe that in order to be a good leader, you have to lead yourself well. Why do you see that as important? It's almost as if you can't put the cart before the horse. And it has a lot to do with the commitments that we expect others to make. We have to make self-commitments first, whether it's to take care of ourselves, to be honest with ourselves, to hone in on those attributes that we need in order to be uh, fulfilled in life and in order to help others, to inspire others. I think that the first step, that cart, must be to take care of ourselves and to lead ourselves, to challenge ourselves. It's that duality of support and challenge 
that I believe is essential in any leadership function, but it must begin with the self. You begin there and you work outwards. I've done work there, and it's pretty hard. It's not easy to do. And when you find leaders that do do that, it's inspirational. I see and I come across a lot of leaders who don't get that. I think it's a critical step that can be easily overlooked, or perhaps it's a bit of fear to mm-hmm. face oneself. You know, to be able to take the time and to pause and not rush through the leadership process because we have this agenda, this very, if you will, Western way of looking at getting things done. And the it's time. The, that's right. <laughs> and, time. and, you know, we kids. have to, and I, I can be guilty of this myself mm-hmm. with, you know, seeking to accomplish things. My to-do list has to be, I have to have the checks marked off on all the little things I have to get done. And you don't see the forest through the trees mm-hmm. if you don't pay attention and listen carefully. Great. Thank you. Sure. What type of leader are you inspired by and why? You know, it's interesting. I think when I first saw that question, I was thinking of specific people, not the type of person. So I hope you don't mind. We can can talk both. uh, You know, off the top of my head, I I certainly list incredible people like Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and John Wooden. All of these leaders displayed an exceptional degree of humility. And while I can't say that I've read extensive books or accounts of them, I do know they lived incredible lives and channeled their energies in ways that deeply inspire me. The first two are very obvious. They inspired millions of people, had a profound impact on the world stage. What I know of Coach Wooden, one of the most successful college basketball coaches of all time, is that he and his work helps to define the type of leader I hope to become. He had a view of life that was, it was quite remarkable. It looked at the importance of family and love, and it wasn't about winning. And he That's would... That's interesting. Oh very, oh, very much so. In fact... He would tell his players, it's not the score on the scoreboard. You know whether you've won or not at the end of the game by what you did. Really? Regardless of the score, really. Very profound. And I bet he won a lot of games. He won a lot of games. See, I'm but that was secondary. I need to learn about sports. <laughs> well, if you learn about coaching, and, and I do believe that leadership and coaching have similarities. Good teaching and good coaching do go hand in hand, particularly nowadays where we know that through technology, we can access all manner of knowledge and and even develop skills watching YouTube videos. But Mm -hmm. it's the coach, the teacher who coaches his or her students to think about asking the right questions. That's still a human quality that can't be done in isolation. That's the humanity of of the teaching learning process or the leadership function Mm -hmm. in an organization or in a community. You can't really be a good leader if you're not a good coach. Right. You know, as much as I know of Coach Wooden or any leader, John Maxwell, uh, who talks about leadership extensively, I just believe that it's important to learn and relearn and cycle back around these people who have profound wisdom, and we build off of that. It's always like standing on the shoulders of others. And, you know, it's my hope that whatever little contribution I make in the field of leadership, I can help extend others who follow me to be able to build upon that. Leave a legacy. Yes. Yes. So what's the best advice you've ever received? I've had some difficulty pinning down an answer to that. I have two thoughts. I don't know if they're surprising or not, but I remember when I was pursuing my administrative certification, a professor suggested that we always remember not to grow too many tomato plants. 
And while we may wish to have many projects and initiatives in our leadership roles, we may face great difficulty managing too much. Similarly, it may be great to have an abundance of delicious tomatoes, but having to weed too many plants inevitably becomes problematic. Mm. And that is... Now, you mentioned you like gardening. I love gardening. So this speaks to you. Can you tell us? Oh, it does. (laughs) Well, I know firsthand, my own hands toiling in the soil, that... You know, having to reduce the uh, the square footage or the number of plants that I'm looking to grow, whether it's flowers or vegetables, in an effort to really hone in on the quality mm-hmm. that I want to arrive at. And it's that same issue that if I have too many wonderful projects, they can all be great, but learning how to hone in on the essential ones, the key ones that are going to drive others, to find the locomotive projects that are going to help carry along with them mm-hmm. other avenues or help other people to adopt habits of mind that will help fulfill that mission and vision that we have. That's really the essence and the key. The other piece of advice that was given to me quite some time ago was interesting because I consider myself a very passionate person when it comes to education. And this individual reminded me that in the function of an administrator, maybe not so much as a leader, but as an administrator, you have to have an almost dispassionate view to navigate the challenges that confront you. Mm -hmm. And I don't take that as being opposite of one another. It doesn't stop me from being myself and exuding a passionate persona, which other people often pick up on. Um, They see and sense my sincere desire to make a difference. And that passion can be a quiet passion. But when you have to make decisions, you do have to step back and not let the emotions necessarily drive you in in a particular direction. And I think that's the part, that balancing act that you have to arrive at. So those are two completely different, but I think Mm -hmm. uh, interesting pieces of advice that I've received that have helped me. So it's not that you can't be passionate. It's that you have to be really reflective and thoughtful about how to navigate that, right? And it's using that passion judiciously. And, you know, when you overplay it and use it all the time, people maybe recoil from that but when they see it come out at just the right moment it does become inspirational and they they feed off of that and they love that they love to see that you're not just superficial about this agenda that we're setting for education you really believe in this in your heart of hearts you really believe that all children can learn and must learn Mm -hmm. and unless you're passionate about that belief People and children will pick up on that immediately. Children especially. Children especially. They'll read you like you know, a book. It's funny. I, had, I interviewed Dr. Lynn Lubecki. She spoke about how she had to channel her intensity. But it's knowing yourself well, leading yourself well, because mm. you have an effect on other people. And other people may not receive that intensity. And so mm. considering how you walk and being concerned about other people is key there. Absolutely. I'm fond of believing, I don't know who coined it or what, but messages really do matter. How we transmit those messages, you know, body language, the choice of words, the tone of voice, all of those elements um, conspire. And you can be, as I said, a a quiet, passionate person, and it comes across. Thank you for that. So what does it mean to have a good team And how could you cultivate that? So a good team is capable of seeing a common vision and develops the capacity to contribute to that vision using their own personal strengths and talents. Building up others is one of my most important roles to help them become more effective. 
Building a team, like many things in life, takes time. Claiming small victories or capturing what we call the low-hanging fruit mm. is essential to the long-term process of team building. And you know, we must not forget that it's so vitally important to celebrate our work and to bring joyful experiences to that work, to have fun, and to learn about each other apart from the day-to-day -day work, to have retreats, to go away from the grind. And I would also add that team building requires that we constantly model. You know, we have to lead by example. And I think that all of those factors put together are part of that team building process. And, you know, much like a bank account, you have to keep making deposits because occasionally, even members of a team or an organization, there will be times to make a withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? Well, it basically, it's the social component of how we engage with one another as human beings. And making deposits daily, we're never done, whether it's saying things that remind people of how valuable they are as human beings, by giving them examples of the kinds of things that build them up as individuals and as people, will assist in the, in the leadership process, because occasionally there will be that moment where a withdrawal is made, and it's not a positive situation. But if you have a large enough bank account, you stay in the positive. You don't go into a negative terrain, if you will. You mentioned a couple of things which stood out for me is value, how you pour into, you deposit into your team. You build those relationships, and that's important. Oh. Can you speak about how you build relationships? Like, for how long have you been here? So I've just started my ninth year mm -hmm. um, here in Southall Schools, and I, I'm also the superintendent in Greenport Schools. It's a unique leadership role. So you're a superintendent in two, two districts? Two districts, two boards of education, two completely separate entities, two different communities. It's There are 120 school districts on Long Island, and this is the only... Uh, shared superintendent function. I'm the only shared one out of 120. And this is interesting because <laughs> you live in wine country. <laughs> we live out in so the north. So going Fork. back home on a you know after day of stress for me would be difficult. But you seem so um, focused. I think you need to be. I think it's a practice. Leadership and the roles that we play. It's a daily practice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a law practice or an architectural practice. Uh, medical practice. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why we use that word practice. It's a constant effort to hone in on those skills. And you had a, another question just prior to that. What was so important about what you honed in on there was this notion of relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you talked about building value. And at the heart of everything that we're talking about, and this centers directly, I believe, on the heart of the teaching learning process and why technology cannot substitute for the human dynamic, the human component, which is relationships mm -hmm. and rapport. That's where all of this begins. And the degree to which I work very hard at that daily deposit of building relationships and rapport with as many people as I can each and every day, that is a successful day. It's mm -hmm. not about hunkering down at my computer. Although, messages that I send out, thank mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. acknowledgement, that's part of the process too. People, I think, mistakenly arrive in a leadership situation in an organization, and right away they short circuit the idea of, you know, they're gonna get to know people after a little while, then they're gonna move their agenda. And I think that they're not leaving the cake in the oven long enough. So does that happen often? I think it's that false sense of the certificate on the wall 
that says, I have earned this title. That's the mistake about what titles don't do. You have to earn that respect and you have to preserve it and protect it as something of tremendous value. And the only way to do that is to keep making those deposits, to keep checking in with people. How are you doing? To keep listening. Mm -hmm. Not to say, I'm done listening, now I'm going to start telling. That's the mistake I think that some leaders fall into. Mm -hmm. They move right into that, I'm going to manage this because I know better type of situation. And for me, it never ends, that listening component, that ability to really delve deep into the heart and soul of what others are thinking and feeling so that I can learn better each and every day how I can help. Mm -hmm. That's what a leader should do. Someone said that my job as an administrator is to clear the rocks and pebbles from the path of the teacher, which is very true. Very simple, but very true. That's very visual to me, clear the rocks and pebbles, because teachers want to make a difference. We're creative souls. I think teachers are incredibly creative, and to clear that path for them. That's what will allow them to be more creative. In fact, I consider myself a teacher and an artist first, and a superintendent second. That ultimately, that's what my function, what I do when Mm -hmm. I'm doing my work well, Mm -hmm. is I'm teaching, and I'm creating opportunities and creating ways to preserve a rich past, a rich history, and keeping that balancing act. Can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? Sure. It actually goes back um, over 25 years ago. It was the challenge of finding a way into the hearts and minds of incarcerated youth that I taught in California. To this day, I still have writing that I engaged in with the teenagers who were serving time for a variety of crimes. It's up in my attic in boxes. As a relatively new teacher, I wondered how education did not help serve them to avoid the circumstances that brought them to jail. I became inspired to think of how education could help facilitate ways for young people to live productive lives. I often thought that my job was to put myself out of work, that with a successful educational program for youth at risk, I would then move on to other problems that needed my attention. I'd love to talk a little bit more about those years. Was that your first time teaching? Is that, well, my was wife that your initiation? I, into it was just after my initiation. I had taught for about a year in New York City in the public school system. And my wife uh, had an opportunity through her line of work for us to move to California. So it was only a year or so into my teaching career that I then worked for the next four years out in California in the jail facility. It was with the Los Angeles County Probation Department, and the students were serving sentences of uh, six to 18 months, and they were locked up. So what made a difference? What was the connection that you made with them that made a difference? Well, I believe I killed them with kindness, first and foremost. You know, people, it was interesting because you think about this, one of the techniques that I was asked to utilize, which I never used, was a point system. So these youth, the youth that I was faced with each day when they would come into the classroom, quote-unquote, every one of them next to their names, I could give them a zero, one, or two, depending upon how well they performed in the classroom environment for that particular day or time. Every one of every day of all those students, every time got a two, no matter what. I never, ever, ever diminished the point value that I was awarding them for the simple fact that if they got enough demerits and enough zeros on their charts, they could be sent to the box. Now, the box was isolation, 
And I'd be darned if I was going to take young people in a box and put them in a smaller box. So I did quite the opposite, and I found success. And I, here's a, a, a very small case in point. I created something called the Life Experiences Program, and this was what I did my master's uh, thesis on. I brought in cartoonists. I had them uh, learning about firefighting. I had a, a dozen Harley Davidson motorcycles arrive in the facility, probably the one and only time ever in history that these motorcycles arrived there because I wanted to instill a sense of adventure and passion about what life could be like beyond drug dealing or, or being a part of gangs. Almost all of them were members of gangs, street gangs. So I knew I had to suck the venom out. You can't put a Band-Aid on that. There's a venom inside of them that I had to pull out and get them to experience life. And we had one opportunity. I somehow managed to get somebody to sponsor a trip outside of the facility in the Pacific Ocean to go fishing. And I remember vividly with some probation officers being with me, and they could have easily run away and gone AWOL, absent without Throwing leave, and I would sea. have been in quite a bit of trouble. <laughs> yeah. And I remember coming back, to the, none of them did, and coming back to the facility, and one of them candidly saying to me, you know, Mr. Gamberg, the reason why I didn't run away was because I respect you. And yeah, it was that, That's awesome. that kind of um, relationship that I believe I was able to instill that yeah. made the difference. You know, you mentioned something, and I wonder if there's a connection between the point system and the connection between schools and incarceration. And we can certainly open that can of worms. But at least we're thinking about, hmm, is this the best thing? Right. No, you're absolutely right. I think that that's some of the visceral reaction that I have to the data wonks who want to quantify all of what we're talking about and put it into ones and zeros and seemingly think that it can all be mechanized and, and captured that way. And that's not to say that there isn't a time and a place to record and develop qualitative data right. that helps us to glean and understand how to improve. But to use it as a weapon, the way it's being used in teacher evaluations and to drive students in one direction that fails to create the humanity and learning, I think is a, is a grave mistake. Right. And ironically, the systems around the world that perform the best don't do that. They know better. Mm -hmm. We used to know better, and we seem to have lost our way. Well, we can still find our way. Oh, we certainly can. <laughs> That's part of why I'm doing what I'm doing. So tell us about one of your greatest successes and how it has shaped you and the lives of those around you. So it boils down to this example of helping to establish a school garden. I, I spoke earlier about my passion in gardening, and it was wonderful to have the opportunity to bring that passion into the schoolhouse. And I vividly remember many people saying, oh, we tried that once before, and the weeds grew to four feet tall, and it brought mice, and we had to discard the garden. Well, I'm very pleased to say we've had that garden now for over five years. It has brought hundreds, if not thousands, of pounds of fresh produce into the school cafeteria. Children write poetry, study scientific principles, and learn countless lessons while spending time in the garden. And so the naysayers... Well, whether they were vocal or they stood on the sidelines and waited and watched to see if right. this was really going to last or was right. it going to get torn down the way the old one did. People now, the teachers and adults and, and parents and families that have joined in, I can't imagine them seeing the garden disbanded. Right. It's so vitally a part of the culture of the experience of going to school in Southhold and also in Greenport as well. So 
I think people have really come to appreciate the values that we have in uh, having a school garden. And that speaks to your leadership, that you had a vision for this. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says, it came to Absolutely. be. That's great. Now, what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working climate or culture? First, I would say you have to find one or a few elements that you can see as being positive, Mm -hmm. because there are positive elements even in a a climate or a culture that they may be discouraged in. Mm -hmm. And then you have to add to those elements. You have to build upon those small things that are working, the green shoots that are coming up from the ground. (laughs) You're such a gardener. Yes. (laughs) Many metaphors. Uh, I would then refer them to a book called Shaping School Culture, The Heart of Leadership by Deal and Peterson. And by the way, you notice the title uses shaping, not changing school culture. Mm. And I want to just share with you, actually, I know your listeners can't necessarily see this, but first of all, I'm going to give you the little synopsis of these various roles that we play in an organization. But when you look at this book, this is a classic of the way that I read books. Wow. Because you see, and people often ask, well, do the different colors mean anything? Not really. I highlight in whatever color I can grab, but... I've going, seen that before, by the way. Yeah. Really deep thinkers. Going over and over and over again and really trying to distill. And I've read the book several times, and it just, it's rich with the kinds of things that we have to pay attention to in shaping a culture and, and looking and honoring a culture for where the history of the culture is. What are the artifacts? Everything tells a story about the culture of, of a place, of a community, everything. The littlest things on the wall, the way people greet you at the door, the signs and symbols, all of that. When you came into this building, you should have, you may not have noticed it because it was up above, but as soon as you enter the door, it says South Hold Schools, preserving the past and finding the future. Mm-hmm. Because it's that duality of recognizing that our past is vitally important to who we are here in this community. And if you I, walk- did, I didn't see that, but I have to yeah. tell you, I felt very welcomed as soon as I oh, came good. to the door. Well, that's more important than what the sign says is how you felt. Right. And we constantly work at that. It's, it's a never-ending process. And I was going to add that in Greenport schools, you feel the history as soon as you walk in. The walls are just filled with photographs that go back to 1908. Every single year from 1908 to 2016, there are images of student classes that are on the walls. It's amazing. And so these artifacts, these symbols about a culture of a community need respect. And then we have to look to shape it and keep it vibrant and alive and healthy. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would offer to someone who felt that they were perhaps in a culture that was not welcoming or the climate wasn't what they thought it should be. Because climate is a very important um, quality. So to find the good even in the chaos, right? And you yes. can always learn Absolutely. from that, even at least at least learn how not to be. <laughs> Absolutely true. We do <laughs> learn Can I keep this? You may. Yes, okay, great. please, go right ahead. Many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you, and what are you learning now? Well, you know, unfortunately, it is a bit of a cliche, and it gets bandied about in, in education. And I'm learning to keep my eyes on the prize in the face of challenges, and I'm constantly striving to learn how to improve as a leader. I know that's a bit general, generic. It doesn't get into the specifics. I'm learning how to use data better or I'm learning how to um, try some new technique because I do think that 
some of the most essential elements of the leadership challenge are fundamental behaviors that we have to practice and work on, including self-improvement, including health and wellness and mindfulness. Um, my very good friend and colleague, Michael Hines, uh, who I believe you interviewed as part yes. of this, yes. he's really taking that to heart. He's doing incredible work in the area of mindfulness and yoga and meditation. And, you know, he's walking the walk, not just talking the talk. Mm -hmm. And I'm inspired by that. Mm -hmm. And that kind of embracing of, of the leadership challenge in fundamental ways, not fancy techno savvy ways but some basic ways so i think that relearning and learning valuable lessons from the past are as important as keeping current so if one of the students in the school were to walk in here and say to you how do i become a lifelong learner i'm interested in this i, I love learning but how do i stay a lifelong learner what would you say? Again, it's, it's a daily practice that I think if you make a commitment to that, a genuine, sincere commitment, and not, just, not a superficial one, it goes from there. That's the starting point, by planting that seed within yourself, that it's something that you aspire to do, it's something you believe in as part of your life's journey, mm -hmm. that you derive tremendous value out of that. You become more of a human being. You become more of who you are destined to become by doing that. Mm -hmm. When opportunity knocks, I answer the door. Mm -hmm. And I try to teach that right. to other people that you never know where and when that opportunity is going to become available. You know, I remember going on a jog and suddenly this idea popped into my head, drone. And from that notion of thinking about the concept of drone photography, I thought of having our student TV production team actually use a drone to create a 10-minute video about play that we are using right now to help inspire others to support our efforts to grow our playscape. Mm. One of the things I see is that you're an avid reader. Yes. And that certainly speaks to lifelong learning because you continue to glean from even the same book. What have you read that our listeners should read and why? So right now, our administrative team is reading Change or Die. And I'm actually rereading it for a second time. As you mentioned, I read things more than once. I know the title is uh, certainly a bit morbid, but the book reveals the inherent challenges that people face when seeking to change, whether it's to change ourselves or as a leader to seek to change others or have others change. We don't change them, they change themselves. Mm -hmm. It basically provides a framework to look at the change process and the inherent human resistance to change. You know, I don't know where I learned this, but it's, it's almost a fact, I think, that we see this time and time and time again. If people were to arrive in a room and they sat down in seats and they came back a week later, invariably they would go to the same seats. You can do this experiment around the world, and nine times out of ten you will see that very same habit of going to that same space. Why? Because it's part of human nature to be in that place of comfort. And so if we think about that... Like the, a safety. It, it is. It's mm -hmm. a human uh, feature that we will do the same things over and over again because it's a safe place. To change our habit, to change our seat, is uncomfortable. And if we think about the idea of wanting to change an organization, change teaching practice, change the way we do business, that's a much harder task if the simple fact of changing a seat is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So Change or Die talks about that 
very interesting. I don't know if I could actually read from the very beginning sure. of it because it's rather fascinating. Uh, just this very small couple of paragraphs at the beginning. It begins with this. What if a well-informed, trusted authority figure said you had to make a difficult and enduring change in the way you think, feel, and act? If you didn't, your time would end soon, a lot sooner than it had to. Could you change when change really mattered, when it mattered most? Yes, you say. Try again. Yes? You're probably deluding yourself. That's what the experts say. They say you wouldn't change. Don't believe it? You want odds? Here are the odds that the experts are laying down. They're scientifically studied odds, 9 to 1. That's 9 to 1 against you. How do you like those odds? This revelation unnerved me when I heard in November 2004 at a private conference at Rockefeller University, an elite medical research center in New York City. Mm -hmm. The event was hosted by the top executives at IBM who invited the most brilliant thinkers they knew from around the world to come together for a day and propose solutions to some of the world's biggest problems. The first topic was the health crisis, the crisis in healthcare, an industry that consumes an astonishing $2.1 trillion a year in the United States, more than one-seventh of the entire economy. Despite all that spending, we're not feeling healthier and we aren't making enough progress towards preventing illnesses that kill us, such as heart disease, stroke, and cancer. Anyway, it goes on and on and on, and it talks about the fact that people who smoke cigarettes who are told don't do this, 9 out of 10 will not change. So the book identifies the kinds of habits of mind that real change has occurred, like Dean Ornish, who created this vegan diet that transformed people with heart disease. Mm -hmm. And it was a radical shift, but certain things like rapport had to be established to help the patient. It cites other examples, but I found it to be incredibly fascinating. It's not a silver bullet. It's not a quick fix. It's really a reorientation. It takes work, which it is probably does. why people are so repelled. For sure. And it takes that combination of things working in concert together in order to facilitate, whether it's having an inspirational leader, having support, a network, things that will help you along the way, and a process that all conspire to bring about and facilitate change. So who chose this book? Um, I actually did. Uh, it's, and how is it being received? I think it's being very well received. It's being read by the two administrative teams in Greenport and Southhold. Mm -hmm. And they find it very interesting to confront the fact that they are in roles of responsibility that seek to bring about change. And yet it's revealing to see how difficult it is mm -hmm. and how we have to be careful about thinking about the change process as we work through it. It's not a simple command that we have with our titles that we have. That's really the underpinning of this, that legislative process, not the executive leadership that we used to hear about in the 1950s, where the boss would tell us what to do and we didn't know any better. Well, now the power of technology, we may know better and we may be able to find answers elsewhere, not necessarily from the school. We have to bring value to what we do in schooling today because whether it's homeschooling or online learning or learning from YouTube or any of these kinds of variables that are out there, we must face that reality. The genie is out of the bottle. Mm -hmm. And we have to make school and schooling purposeful, humane, and meaningful. Mm -hmm. So David, if one of our listeners wants to imitate this, what should they do? So they pick a book. How do you work that? Do you meet with them once a week? 
once a month? Good question. So uh, long, long ago, actually, I learned of the concept of book talks. And it was told to me, quite frankly, that whatever value I may derive in a book by reading it by myself, that value is amplified or magnified when I read within a group like the Oprah Book Club. Yeah. We, you, you know, we have something like that. It's the mastermind group. Sure. And, and so it adds value to the experience when we, you know, I never thought of that. Or when you hear validation, like I thought of that also. And this happened to me and this is how I dealt with it because of Right, we bring in the life experience right. and it's like, I never realized that. And the idea of teaching, and everything is a teachable moment. So teaching the administrative team the importance of citing, going right into the text and finding something, lifting something from the text directly and challenging it or saying this really hit, hit a nerve with me is extremely important, honoring the text. It's like a Socratic seminar. And that modeling is what I expect the administrators to then do with teachers and then teachers to then do with students. It all works right. in the same fashion, whether it's elementary school or high school or college or the workplace or the community. So how often do you meet with them? So we meet um, every two weeks and we take chunks of the book at a time and we reserve a space on the agenda to have our book talk. So if we talk about, you know, things that we, issues we have to confront, we're planning for a conference, then we have a little space at the end. Okay, now let's turn. I can show you some agendas mm -hmm. where you see change or die pages 100 to 130 or whatever. We're nearing the completion of the book, actually. How many books do you go through in a year? You know, it does become a little more difficult as the year progresses. Mm -hmm. It's best when you start the year. Sometimes over the summer, we could begin the process. And it's not always a, a smashing success. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we'll start a book and not finish it. And that's okay, too. Sometimes we'll read an article. It's the act of joining in as learners together because... And practicing lifelong learning. And practicing it. And we really need to become learning organizations. That's really what ultimately what we are. Yes, yes. So you have a lot of responsibilities, especially as a superintendent of two school districts. Um, what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for those responsibilities? Love, love that question. So when I'm at my best, which is not every day, I set my, myself up for success by doing two things. One is what I call a Tony walk. And very simply, it's about a 15-minute walk that I've learned from Tony Robbins. I don't know if you know Tony Robbins. Yes, I or know do. Of him, <laughs> who teaches us about meeting challenges through basic fundamental actions that guide human behavior. And it involves, on this walk, um, expressions of gratitude and goal setting and a breathing technique designed to get you in state. So you deliberately breathe in this... So breathe in three times, three times and, and you out touch your the mouth. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And you do this to start the walk. You do that for a number of minutes, and I listen to a tape as I'm walking, and then I go into several minutes of gratitude. I'm so grateful for my health. I'm so grateful for my wife, my two beautiful boys. You vocalize this, grateful for the opportunity, the freedom that I have, the ability to learn, the people that I learn from, the, the opportunity to make a difference in the lives of children. And this is an essential element, I think, of leadership, is to, to be grateful for what we get to do. I don't have to do things, I get to do things, Tony Robbins would say. Yes. And the other thing I do, uh, again, when I'm doing... Now, at what time do you get up? Oh, you don't want to know. No, no, I'm we do. I'm a very bad sleeper. Um, so I'm up so at the crack of dawn. So we need to dawn. work on sleeping We need then. to work okay. on sleeping. We definitely uh, You and do. Michael Hines and myself. Okay. Yes, but that aside, <laughs> I, so I'm up at uh, 4 o'clock, but I, 
I don't always do this at the because it's dark out. Right. But the other thing I need to do is I need to go to the gym. I need to exercise, mm-hmm. um, and that's a very important thing. And that's oxygen as well. Mm-hmm. And it might be a jog or a little bit of weightlifting or something. And it's not strenuous, but it's enough that it it does get the juices going, and it does set me up for the day. And I see my same partners at the gym there. Eight or ten people are there at five o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when there is sunlight, um, I can take my walk 15 minutes in addition to that. So, you know, most leaders, we have a hard time with balance. How do you maintain balance? What advice would you give us about maintaining balance in our lives? Because, oh you know, as educational leaders, the hours yeah. are horrendous. Yeah, I, it's a work in progress. I mean, as much as I've just described, that's when I'm at my best and I'm not always at my best. And uh, it's being mindful of the importance of that first and foremost and you know we have to give ourselves the latitude to know that it's almost like on an airplane we're taught that before you help others you have to help yourself when the oxygen mask comes down it's the same basic principle and I believe that a lot of what we're talking about today there are basic fundamental principles whether it's Maxwell or Tony Robbins or Stephen Covey all of these principles they all are from the same tree And we just have to attend to them regularly, habitually, and not look for that slicker, newer, quicker, microwavable way to get there, because there is no microwavable way Mm -hmm. to get to this. Okay, so I'm going to kind of push back because this is so important, and I see you do take care of yourself, but we come across situations where we have leaders who really feel they don't have the time. And you said it has to be important, and, that, and that's true. So when we balance everything, we're talking about you know work. And I don't believe in work life, home life. Everything is life, period. It, well it's said. just your life. Right. <laughs> so how do you, though, when you go home, meet the needs there without being pulled in so many directions? And the same here. How, sure. how do you do that? Because it's, I guess, the kernel that I'm looking for and right. that we need to hear because we can swing the pendulum on both ends sure. and, and not get Being that balance. Be in the extreme, yeah. one side or the other, whichever yeah. side that so might how be. So do you, how do you work with that? How do you well, deal with that? Well, I, I think it is a challenge. It's a daily mm-hmm. challenge. I'm, I'm very fortunate. You know, I have a life partner and my wife mm-hmm. who we help balance each other out and support each other. And I think that's a critical element to have at least someone, if not many people in your life that you can go to. And it's a give and take relationship. And it's certainly something there's mutual benefit when we do that in our daily lives. And we can easily get sucked into that vortex of having to respond to the urgent, the tyranny of the now easily. It's a slippery slope and it's very hard. You know, it's kind of like gravity. We have to go against gravity that's the challenge it's a life challenge to work against gravity Mm -hmm. in order to realize growth which is what we're talking about we're talking about growing as people so creating the balance is actually growing and becoming more capable to serve better because that's what it's about it's about service how can I serve better if I don't improve my own health and wellness you know you spoke on the fact that you and your wife are very close and you have friends that are close and Maxwell talks about the law of the inner circle. And I think we've, we've probably hit something here. Seeking that balance has to do with your inner circle, the people that you bring into your life to speak yes. into your life. 
um, because we don't necessarily see, we have that blind spot. We don't see everything. It's like coaching. Absolutely. We need that, whether it's a critical friend or someone who loves you and whichever direction it comes from, it's vitally important to get that outside lens looking in. You have to do self-reflection, but that's why some of the greatest uh, athletes and others have coaches. They can outperform anybody on the planet, but they still have coaches to help look in and guide and shape and, you know, improve. We've hit it. We did it, David. <laughs> I think that's the essence of I it. I think that's the best answer we've gotten so far. That's great. Okay. So last question. If you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? So maybe it's a bit redundant, but practice the habits of leadership that you learn on a daily basis. So I mentioned that when I'm at my best, that's when I'm doing that, but that's not always every day. So daily is a commitment that I would have to make. So you talked about reading voraciously, and it's been a life's journey to become an avid reader, and I I sometimes can be the most critical uh, person of my own reading level, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have to be patient and honest about meeting my commitments. I think that's what I would tell myself. So is there anything that we haven't addressed that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, it's obvious that we are living in very challenging times in education and in the larger world. Mm -hmm. I think the Chinese proverb states, may you live in interesting times, and we (laughs) certainly are. But today, fear is a dominant theme. And now more than ever, we need thoughtful, reflective, and compassionate leaders. David, I really want to thank you so much for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hello, leaders. Don't forget to go to masterleadership.org to find out how to get a free coaching session from one of the exceptional leaders that are featured on this podcast. Until next time. Bye.